Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. That's greenlight.com ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast, an audio guided walk featuring many of London's untold, unsolved, and long-forgotten murders, all set within and beyond the West End. Today's episode is about the investigation into the vicious double murder of two best friends, Barbara Songhurst and Christine Reed, who were stabbed, raped, and disposed of by an unknown attacker on a peaceful Thames towpath. But who was this man? And why did he kill? Murder Mile is researched using the original police files. It contains moments of satire, shock and grisly details. And as a dramatisation of the real events, it may also feature loud and realistic sounds. So that, no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael. I am your tour guide. And this is Murder Mile. Episode 108, The Thames Topath Murders, Part 2. Today, I'm standing by St. Helena Pier, just off the Thames Topath in Richmond, one mile north of the campsite of Petersham Meadows, where Barbara and Christine enjoyed their last laugh. Two miles north of their final sighting, just shy of Oldham Lock. Two miles northeast of the shallow waters by Radnor Gardens, where Barbara's body was found. And a full three miles north of Teddington Lock. St Helena Pier is a popular place for tourists and locals alike. As you're only a short totter from a posh shopping trip in Richmond Town Centre, a pleasant scoot along the oddly uneven towpath from Kew Gardens, or a bobbly windswept boat ride to Hampton Court Palace. But this is a place of rest. Being an old-fashioned sloped boat dock leading down to the water's edge, although buses and trucks whiz by on nearby Richmond Bridge, St. Helena Pier has a real slowness about it, as everything is done at a very sedate pace. With a smattering of alehouses and tea shops set around a Georgian-stepped terrace, if you ignore the modern monstrosity of the aluminium pier, it's a lovely spot to soak up the view, feed the ducks, 
inhale some semi-fresh air and do a little spot of people watching. There's several types you'll see. There's the strollers, the joggers, the sitters and the snoozers. There's the pseudo-intellectuals who seem fully absorbed in every word by Albert Camus, except what they're reading is just a dust jacket covering the latest Jackie Collins smut fest. There's the hopeless romantics who've hired a boat and punt it like a limbless gondolier and think it's original to sing the Cornetto song. And from a series of wooden boat sheds, cleverly called the Riverside Buildings, four and eight-man sculling crews row knife-like boats through the water, while a mini Hitler barks orders at them and gives everyone a hint at how this sad singleton spends his spare time. That said, it's not all nice, as with over 200 bridges along the Thames. Sadly, each year, at least 50 bodies are recovered from the river. So many that the police set up a marine force to fish the bodies out. Several morgues were built under various bridges, including Tower Bridge, and many dead have been pulled out, right here at St. Helena Pier. One of whom was a 16-year-old girl. As it was here, on Monday the 1st of June 1953, that Barbara Songhurst's body was pulled ashore. But even before the autopsy had begun, it was clear that she hadn't drowned. She was murdered. Just one day before the Queen's coronation, as the streets were swept, railings were painted, and the homeless were bussed out of the city so they didn't sully the celebrations. For many, this was the start of a public holiday. But for Detective Superintendent Herbert Hannon, a murder investigation was about to begin. At 9.05am, from a few inches of shallow water by the riverbank at Radnor Gardens, Sergeant George Cooper struggled to pull the tiny childlike body of this seven stone and five foot girl into his boat. As her blue jeans, white tartan blouse and white woolen coat were sodden with the silty river sludge. Who she was, how she had died, and where she had entered the water was unknown. As although most of the evidence had washed away, with the river becoming tidal when the lock sluices are up, her body could have travelled many miles upstream or down, depending on the time of day or night. At a steady speed, Sergeant Cooper drove the boat north, past Petersham Meadows, Duke's Hole, and 15 minutes later, he arrived at St. Helena Pier, where an excitable crowd had already gathered. Attracted by the sight of a constable carrying a lump draped in a thick grey blanket, the chatter ceased and a silence descended, as although the gorpa spied a corpse. Judging by its size, it was clearly a child. 44-year-old Detective Superintendent Herbert Hannon was a short but smart man, widely regarded as a highly experienced senior detective 
with many cases under his belt. Being nicknamed the Count, owing to his high-class aspirations and slightly affected upper-class accent. Being thorough and determined, he was a man who would leave no stone unturned to see justice done. At 10.12pm, the autopsy began at Richmond Mortuary, conducted by the pathologist, Dr. Arthur Mant. With two impact craters to her head and cheekbone, but no defensive wounds, this suggested the initial attack was sudden and premeditated. With the angle of the wounds being head height, the killer was likely to be a foot taller than Barbara. Being well built, he inflicted enough force to render her semi-conscious. But his motive wasn't murder, as he had struck her with the blunt curved butt of an axe and not his sharp deadly head, which risked her waking, fleeing or screaming. Both strikes were controlled, suggesting that he had attacked before. And yet, three deep and frenzied stab wounds to her back, rather than her front, told a completely different story. It was as if, for whatever reason, something had compelled him to kill. With the young girl's identity determined, and her cause of death confirmed, Herbert knew that every one of her wounds helped paint a picture of her attacker. This man was a young, well-built male of average height, possibly local, handy with a knife and an axe, who was likely to have prior convictions for a similar offence. Only he matched no known rapist or murderer. And yet, Herbert saw a strange similarity between Barbara's murder and an attack just one week prior. On Sunday the 24th of May, eight miles south of Teddington, as 14-year-old Kathleen Ringham walked along an isolated towpath on Oxshot Heath, a vicious sadistic attack had left her dazed, raped and traumatised. Blinded by the pain in her head and the blood in her eyes, she caught a brief glimpse of her assailant. A young white male with dark hair and a cleft chin, who was grubby like he'd just come off a building site, and he had struck her across the back of the head with the blunt curved butt of an axe. The investigation stalled owing to a lack of evidence and witnesses, but the police had enough details to compile a photo fit. At around the same time, that the body of Barbara Songhurst was brought ashore at St. Helena Pier. The murder location was discovered, almost three miles south on the corner of Teddington Lock. Amid the cloudy moonless sky of the previous night, the raging river had seemed as black as the dense thicket of shadowy trees which shrouded the uneven towpath. But being in the bright light of a crisp summer day, where red looked red and liquid was vivid, this was the unmistakable sight of a massacre. On the ham side of the Thames, 
just down from the lockkeeper's cottage, the two pedestrian bridges, and the river's triple locks. On an S-shaped kink in the path lay a green gabardine raincoat, several spots of blood, and some scuff marks in the soil. To the untrained eye, it looked like the aftermath to a fight. But to Herbert Hannon, as his experienced eyes followed an obvious and unsettling trail from the towpath to the thicket to the river, it backed up every detail that Barbara's autopsy had suggested. From behind a lone tree, whilst the anxiously waiting assailant had hacked at his bark with an axe, with a swift strike as she cycled by, he had knocked Barbara clean off her bike. As she fell to the path, and perhaps screamed, to silence her, he struck her a second time to render her semi-conscious, but alive. Into the dense thicket he dragged her. Among the wooded undergrowth, he scattered her clothes. On a patch of flattened grass, he savagely raped her. And although he seemed to relish, staring into the terrified eyes of this little girl, for whatever reason, having raped her while she was face up, he then turned her face down to brutally stab her. As a thick bloody pool slowly spread, where she lay dying. With his evil deed done, and his tiny victim dead, having dragged Barbara across the towpath, down the grassy slope, with her blood staining the coping stones and the oak timbers of the lock wall, as he cast her out into the dark black river, the tidal waters carried her upstream, and he hoped out to sea. He took the weapons, dumped the bike, and mistakenly left behind his green gabardine raincoat. Everything about this crime scene made sense to Detective Hannon. Only this wasn't just the site of a young girl's attack, as every detail had been duplicated. This was unmistakably a double murder. Down to the water, a second set of heels had been dragged. Amongst the undergrowth were two sets of girls' low-heeled shoes, one black, one white, and both bloodstained, as well as a ripped pair of dark blue slacks. And in the dense thicket lay two flattened patches of grass and two thick pools of blood, where two best friends had died, side by side as the last sound they heard were each other's tears. The scene gave up very few definitive clues to the killer's identity. There were no bikes, no weapons, no sightings, no witnesses, no shoe marks, and no fingerprints. A lot of vital evidence was missing, but more importantly, so was Christine Reed and the likelihood was, she was already dead. The last days and hours of Barbara and Christine's lives were investigated thoroughly. 
Gertrude, Daniel, and the Sonka siblings gave solid and consistent statements, as did Herbert and Lucy and the rest of the Reed family. Everyone was questioned, from the Blue Angel Cafe, York House, the chemist shop, the factory, and the church. Five people were confirmed as the last to see both girls alive. Their three pals, John Wells, Albert Sparks, and Peter Warren, all gave statements confirming the place and times that the girls had arrived and left the campsite at Petersham Meadows. They explained what they said, what they did, and who with. John admitted to a little light kissing with Barbara. Peter confirmed that he loaned her his bike light. The axe that Albert had used to chop up the firewood was deemed too small to be the murder weapon. And having gone to sleep, 15 minutes after the girls had cycled away, they awoke, packed up, and left the next morning, as verified by the other campers. As for Basil Nixon and Sheila Danes, who heard the two girls on clattering bikes and chattering away just north of Oldham Lock. At roughly midnight, needing to head home, Basil and Sheila walked down that same dark overgrown towpath. With the thunder of the black raging river to their right, a dense thicket of shadowy trees to their left, the cloudy moonless sky obscured by a heavy canopy of low-hanging branches, and even with a good torch, their visibility was only a few feet ahead. But as they walked along the towpath, past Headington Lock, the lockkeeper's cottage, and crossed over the double footbridges heading towards the distant lights of Teddington Town. Amidst the darkness, they saw and heard nothing. With no eyewitnesses, no concrete evidence, and Christine Reed still missing and presumed dead, the police publicly released a photo fit of the scruffy young man with the cleft chin who was wanted for the rape of a minor on Oxshot Heath, and possibly Barbara's murder. But as no one came forward, the case stalled. Through Marble Arch, guns of the field artillery passed to salute the new queen. The next day, as the 27-year-old ex-princess was crowned as Queen Elizabeth II in Westminster Abbey, the grey streets of London erupted in a kaleidoscope of colour and sound as a new era dawned. But for one family, this wasn't a time of joy, but a time of dreaded anticipation. As with her daughter missing and her best friend dead, the police search continued unabated for either the girl or her body. Nothing was left unchecked, as at the police's request, the Port of London Authority drained a three-mile-long, 400-foot-wide and 40-foot-deep stretch of the River Thames, from Teddington Lock to Richmond Bridge, for almost a week. Police boats scoured in packs, Divers dredged the thick silty waters, 
and long lines of constables waded waist-deep for any hint or clue. On Tuesday the 2nd, at about 10.30am, a few feet from the grassy slope at Teddington Lock, Christine's cream and blue BSA sports model bicycle was found. Four days later, on Saturday the 6th of June at 1.35pm, as a police boat patrolled a popular fishing spot known as Duke's Hole, amongst a thick blanket of green algae and a flash of pale white skin, the semi-clad body of a young girl was found face down in the shallow water, just a few feet from Petersham Meadows. With her body bloated and her face decomposed after six days in the cold, silty water, time, weather and water had been cruel to her body. In short, pale patches, her decaying flesh had been stripped by fish, pecked at by birds, and sharp rocks had torn at her soft skin as she tumbled in the raging river. But although deformed, it was clear which wounds were natural and which were not. Like Barbara, Christine had been struck, raped, stabbed, dragged, and dumped in a premeditated and sudden attack. And although the same wounds had been inflicted by the same man with the same weapons, each of her injuries were more frenzied and brutal, as if he resented Christine being there. Rather than two, four deep craters impacted the back of her head, as the blunt curved butt of an axe had repeatedly caved in her skull, crushing the bone and hemorrhaging her brain. Rather than three, six fast and savage stab wounds had ripped six and a half inches deep into her left breast and chest, piercing her lung, liver and heart. And yet, unlike Barbara, when she was stabbed, she was face up. Unlike Barbara, he stripped her lower half, scattering her black flat-heeled shoes and dark blue slacks into the bushy undergrowth, and yet her white cotton knickers were never found. And with lacerations to her hymen and cuts to her perineum, her virginity had been taken and her rape had been brutal. But during the very brief time that he was at the crime scene, into both girls he had ejaculated. The autopsy was conclusive. Whoever had done this was young, strong, patient, and dangerous. With no known suspects matching the sadistic and horrific attack, Detective Superintendent Hannon had no idea who this man was. But he knew one thing for certain. Having brazenly committed a double rape and murder at the same time, in the same place. He had struck before, and he would strike again. On the mid-morning of Wednesday the 17th of June, 15 miles west of Teddington, 49-year-old Patricia Birch left her home in Englefield Green to walk her dog in Windsor Great Park. The day was clear, sunny and dry, 
And being a 5,000 acre royal park, full of rutting deer, wide lakes, dense woods, and meandering paths, it's a popular spot for picnics and walkers, but is large enough to still feel peaceful and private. As she crossed Wick Lane to enter a gate by Savile Gardens, she spotted a young man on a blue bike, staring aimlessly as he watched the smattering of cars which trundled down this quiet country lane. He was young, dark-haired, and spotty-faced, with a noticeable cleft to his chin. He rode a blue bike with white mudguards and a black saddle bag. And looking scruffy, as if he had just come off a building site, he wore a crumpled blue shirt, green gabardine trousers, brown leather gloves, and brown shoes with a crepe sole. But thinking nothing more of it, she entered the heath. Playing fetch with her little dog, as Patricia sauntered along an isolated path towards the flat bleak beauty of Black Pond, she heard a clatter as behind her a bike slowly approached. Turning to see that same young man, she called her excitable little dog to her side so it didn't run in front of his wheels. But as she stooped to clip on its lead, suddenly her vision went very dark, very fast. Briefly seeing nothing but black, and unable to tell up from down as her world spun around. As Patricia slumped hard onto the grassy ground, as her weakened legs buckled under her, a trickle of blood ran down her face and pulled into her eyes, as she felt herself being dragged into a dense dark thicket. Dazed and partially blinded, although petrified and drifting in and out of consciousness, as his brown leather gloves tightly gripped around her gasping throat. During the attack, Patricia tried to memorize as many details as possible. His height, his age, his weight, his size, his spots, his birthmarks, his bike, his saddlebag, and the terrifying sight of his axe. Big enough to chop logs, this yellow-handled, long-wooden-necked and black-bladed axe with a curved blunt end, could inflict death in a single swift blow, being almost as long as an arm and as thick as a head. Fighting for her life and barely able to move her weakened limbs as he tore her clothes off her body and cast them aside into the dense undergrowth. With no one in sight, her screams muffled and her yappy little dog too small to be of any protection. Amidst the dark thicket, he violently raped her. And when he was done, having stolen a pitiful sum of 17 shillings from her purse, he buttoned up his trousers and packed up his saddlebag, as if this was the most normal thing to do in the world. He didn't care that she had seen his face, heard his voice, or been close enough to smell his breath. To him, they were nothing but strangers. And seeing an elderly man approach on the path, alerted by the lone dog barking at bushes, 
the young man rode off on his bike, and into the distance he vanished. Patricia Birch was taken straight to Kingston Hospital. Her skull wasn't fractured. The wound needed only three stitches. She gave a false statement to the police, and she went on to make a good recovery. Sadly, the young man had disappeared. But from people's minds, his photo fit had not. At 5:30 p.m., two builders, Harry Bradford and Bernard Hannam, were reading the paper, discussing the murders, and looking at the photo fit of a possible suspect for the attacks on Barbara Songhurst, Christine Reed, and an unnamed 14-year-old girl on nearby Oxshott Heath. When one of the men said, "You know what? That looks a lot like Alf." Having seen him earlier that day, sitting on a tree stump on Oxshott Heath, with his bike and saddlebag by his side, knowing this local builder fitted the description, and had a passion for knives, they did the right thing, and called the police. At 5:45 p.m., constables Oliver and Howard left Kingston Police Station, picked up the builders. And over the next 45 minutes, they patrolled Oxshott Heath until they found Alf casually strolling along Sandy Lane. Although he had been positively identified, bearing only a passing resemblance to the photo fit, and having no bike, no bag, and more importantly, no axe, the officers stopped and questioned him. What's your name, son? Alfred Whiteway. Address? Twenty-four Sydney Road in Teddington. Yours? Nah, I live with me mum. Empty your pockets. Which he did, but it only contained ten shillings and two bike clips. So where's your bike? I left it at home. You got a bag? Nah, just what I got. And seeing a few spots of blood dotted down his crumpled blue shirt. Accepting acne as a plausible excuse, the baby-faced youth agreed to come in for questioning, and freely volunteered his time to assist the police. Driven in the police's black Wolsey saloon, 22-year-old Alfred Charles Whiteway, known to his pals as Alf, was calm, pleasant, and showed a genuine interest in cars. He even leaned forward from the back seat. To ask the constables questions about the motor, and get a better look at the speedometer. Never once did he act like a killer who had been caught, and not for a single second did he seem like a sadistic sexual predator, who had attacked one girl, murdered two more, and having already raped one woman that day, had cycled a further fifteen miles southeast to Oxshott Heath. To attack again. At roughly 7 p.m., they arrived at Kingston Police Station. Brought before Detective Inspector Bramall, who looked the spotty youth up and down. Before he could be questioned any further, seeing only a vague similarity in the boy, the detective dismissed him.
and Alfred Whiteway walk free. Being in an era of typewriters, paper files and index cards. By the time of Alfred's release, the report on the attack of Patricia Birch had yet to be filed. It hadn't been circulated to the press, other officers, or the detective heading up the investigation into the murders of Barbara and Christine. Among the post-euphoric glow of the Queen's coronation, a sadistic sex maniac and a violent double murderer was still in their midst. Free to go where he wished, to do as he pleased, and to rape whoever he desired. The press had dubbed him the Thames Topath murderer. But as invisible and invincible as this monster felt, with not a single shred of evidence to tie him to his crimes, the one person he hadn't counted on was the man who sought to bring him down, who was nicknamed the Count. Detective Superintendent Hannon was one of Scotland Yard's most highly experienced and decorated officers, who was thorough, determined and precise, and would leave no stone unturned, even going so far as to drain a three-mile stretch of London's largest river to find a single little girl. Described by the force as the policeman's policeman, Hannon was smart, cunning, devious, and although a highly skilled interrogator and investigator who always got the job done, to get results, he would later state, sometimes you have to go beyond what is right to see justice done. Justice was coming to Teddington. But two big questions still plagued the mind of Detective Herbert Hannon. Who was this maniac? And why did he attack both girls at the same time? Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. That was part two of three of the Thames Topath murders with the final part next week and there's some aimless waffle after the break with Extra Mile so turn off now if you haven't already before that a big thank you to my new Patreon supporters who are Richard Saunders Tony Hobden and Paige Spencer I thank you all muchly for your support a thank you to Sue Lloyd for your very kind donation via my website as well as Gavin, Mina and Rachel P who very kindly donated via the supporter link in the show notes. I thank you too. I'm now off to buy a wheelbarrow's worth of cake. Yum! And as always, a huge thank you to everyone who listens to the show as without listeners, I'm just a fat, bald man talking to himself, which I do a lot. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? 
Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Oh, dear Lord. Oh, it felt longer. Oh, dear what time is it? It's early. It's till too bloody. Oh, racing to try and get this done before the crow's woken up and they woke up at the end. And my next door neighbour with his engine on. Oh, racing for that. And my brain couldn't get through all the words at the start because I'd overwritten it. And Oh, God. That was a beast. I'm not going to enjoy editing that. Oh, anyway. Hey, everyone. Extra mile time. Oh, open some windows. Had a boat going past this morning as well. This is bloody early and someone decided to move the boat early, which is fine. I get that, but I, I sometimes do the same. But I was like, ah, oh, I'm trying to record. <coughs> anyway, let's pop on me tea. Oh, I'm going to have to have another coffee because my brain is just... Oh, Let's do a second coffee. I think I need it. I'm going to move the boat in a, in a bit. I'm going to do that. I'm going to shift the boat because it's boat move day. I'm actually slightly beyond boat move day. I just couldn't be asked to move it. So, water in kettle. Should I do that? Oh no, I'll have a tea. I can do with a tea. I'm gonna have an Earl Grey. Oh, my life is exciting. I'm having an Earl Grey tea. Earl Grey tea. And, oh yes, look forward to this. And a chalky croissant as well. Chalky croissant, lovely. Oh yeah, nice croissant got yesterday. Two of them was one pound twenty. Got them for thirty p. Great, got them last minute. Lovely jubbly. They're only Tesco's ones, but they 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 hit the spot. They do the spot. So 
What's going on here? Oh dear, apart from me trying to wake up. Uh, gearing up for Murder Mile Walks, which uh, starts in October. Fingers crossed, everyone. Uh, even though the infection rate in all the countries is going up. Ugh, I'm going to try it. I'm going to try and keep it safe and distance. Have everyone wear masks. No touching. Keep everyone distance. Keep it down to 10 people. Uh, see how it goes. Obviously, with winter coming, we don't know. But we'll see how it goes. We'll see if we can do it. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that's that. Uh, unfortunately, you know, with people not wearing masks and not washing their hands and things like that, it's getting a bit difficult. I think people seem to people seem to be in a mindset that, oh, well, I haven't got it. First thing, you don't know whether you've got it or not. That's the problem with the virus. It's not that visible. You could be a carrier and not have the symptoms, but you could have the virus. And the problem is, do you know, all it takes is one person to spread it. Do you know, as as we saw in Aberdeen recently, a group of people decided to go to a pub, went to a pub, had a bit of fun. Whole city ended up being shut down just because of a group of people, because one, like, one, probably one person had it, went in, spread it to their mates. All their mates go off to different venues. So you get one person spreads it out. Oh, it's so, yeah, we've all got to be cautious and safe. And all it takes is for one person to cock it up for everyone. So, uh, yeah, that's why I'm doing. I'm going to try the tours. If they don't work, I'll have to shut them down. But I'm just going to do it very, very safe, very distant. Uh, what else is going on? It's getting cold. Winter's going to start creeping in. Autumn, winter coming soon. Uh, so I'm buying all my logs and coal and stocking up ready for winter. Uh, I always do this now. Like I've, I've, I'm next to a big B&M store, so I've been stocking up on their one pound logs. They're fire logs. They're really good. You can break them up into halves and they burn really nicely, uh, which is great. And unless you accidentally poke them on the label, it says don't poke them. They're actually a compressed log and you light them and they start the fire off well. And the fire wasn't going to well to one day. So I poked it a little bit, gave it a little bit of a poke. And then the, the fire was like ooh, raging and raging. It went from a kind of a... Um, a reddish hot and a, a, a straw coloured hot with straw coloured hot is nice for the flames but then it went white hot and my temperature gauge went from like uh it went from like its usual kind of four it's like 400 500 degrees something like that it went right round to the other side uh, the whole oven was white hot it, and it was it was heaving it was ooh, 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 the whole fire was doing that and i was i was i'd shut down all the vents and i was standing in front of it with a, a fire extinguisher thinking please don't explode because it was uh yeah luckily it didn't but that was terrifying and that's all that's because i i poked a compression log and on the side of the log it says do not do not break up because they're designed to burn slowly and if you poke them they go all shitty anyone a, a quick shout out at the moment uh just want a new podcast that's out there do you know why i've stopped doing uh, uh promo swaps and shout outs for a podcast on murder mile only because i kind of realized that um uh i've got a lot of old ones on there and kind of a new lot of li listeners are coming in and listen to the podcast and they're like oh great you've got some podcasts for us to listen to but the problem is a lot of these podcasts have shut down now so it's kind of I think for new listeners, it's kind of annoying to go back and go, oh, I'll check out that podcast. And then they realise it's only got seven episodes and they shut it down a year ago. It's a bit annoying. So uh, so I've stopped doing promo swaps now, but I'm just about to do one. Hang on. Let me put me, uh, me Earl Grey in. Earl Grey in. 
pop my old grey in, let it stew. Nice bit of old grey, nice bit of perfumey tea. Uh, so this is a shout out to uh, a new podcast. It's not true crime. It's called Queen Pod. Uh, it's a podcast. I'm going to put a link in the show notes. It's a podcast uh, about the band Queen. So it's if you're a fan of Queen, or especially if you're a Queen nerd and you lo- love kind of Queen facts, really exciting podcast. Uh, hosted by Rowan Acharya, good mate of mine, lovely guy. Another good mate of mine, Mr. Simon Lupton, Mr. Lups Brup. Uh, also hosted by, uh, co-hosted by uh, John Robbins and Suze Kempner, who are comedians and all of them are absolute Queen fans. And that's the great thing. What you've got is Queen fans. What they do is they disseminate all of Queen's albums a side at a time. So an album at a time, side at a time, and they work their way through. Uh, just a couple of episodes out at the time of this release they've just done a queen one which is really good so if you love queen the love the music of queen this is really great even better it's approved by queen's management so actually they've got uh, queen's music in there which you're not allowed to use other people's music on podcasts because it's a copyright issue if you hear other people's music you're meant to go that's wrong on here luckily i use copyright free but i have permission from cult with no name to use their music which is great uh on here they have permission from queen management uh which is great and also mr simon lupton who's an award winning award award woman i've just said award-winning uh, uh documentary producer of queen's documentaries has kind of he knows everyone in he knows he knows all of queen he knows all uh, he's, he knows their entire archive and he has access to some real nuggets literally you won't hear anywhere else so some really rare stuff so if you love queen uh you love their music give it a go it's a it's a nice kind of it, it it's chatty but you know you can tell it's it's done by people who are musicians and engineers and kind of fans and you know they're, they're, everyone's all excited about queen it's not just they're doing it because it's a money maker you can tell that you can tell that they're all passionate about it so uh there's a link in the show notes and it is called queen pod uh, so that's a rare shout out. I'm doing that because they're because they're they're mates. It's a new podcast, but it's it's really nicely done. It's uh, it's something different. So I'm going to grab my uh, tea and do that. Uh, I'm going to put in my oh exciting powdered milk. Oh, ah, oh hot. Soon it will be uh, soon it will be uh, cold enough for me to have proper milk again. That'll be very exciting. Uh, oh, tea bags slopping around. There we go. Right. Oh, coming back. Right. Let's do some questions. Let's see how long I've done. Uh, okay. Uh, okay. Questions. Some of these um, uh, may appear in the extra mile bit, although I'm not too sure how much extra mile I'll do today. Uh, and some of them are I might balls up as always. So, but it happens. But as mentioned, Extra Mile is unedited, unscripted. So, you know, don't do whinge at me if I balls up a question. Uh, right. Question number one. Which two locks were shut down to drain the River Thames? So at three mile stretch of the River Thames, which two locks were shut down to do that? Uh... This is why I like doing this podcast because there's always loads of details that I always go right. Um, I don't, you know me. I don't like writing things. Just writing like some people write things down. And they go, uh, you know, they make a statement and then they walk away. Me, I'm like, 
okay, well, how do you do that? How do you shut down the Thames? So then I, I go off and research and I work out how you shut down the Thames. Because quite often in the in these um, police files, it's not in the... Do you know, like in the other episode where it's like uh, the, the lady who got set, uh, set on fire by her husband and her lover had bought her something from the market. For that, I went researching to find out what in Berwick Market, what fruits were available in that era and you know i knew found out it was a tomato because that was new and exciting but i knew it wasn't a lime because they hadn't turned up yet do you know things like that i love little details like that right question two uh what are the riverside buildings used for at saint helena pier as mentioned at the very start obviously there was uh, the very brief autopsy not autopsy but it's kind of a visual autopsy was done at the uh, riverside buildings but what is it used for today uh, question number three. What road did Patricia Birch cross to get into Great Windsor Park? Oh, I only mentioned that once. So uh, if you remember that, good luck to you. Great Windsor Park is huge. I know I mentioned it was like 5,000 acres, but it is it's huge. It, it's it's sprawling. It's like it goes from uh, the start of where we are down in the south and it goes all like the northern side goes all the way up to uh windsor castle it's huge it's it's not it's not a part where you can just walk across it well you could walk across it but it'd take you a day maybe day and a half i don't know I mean, it's big it's big so uh where we are question four how long and wide was the axe now i haven't mentioned i think i might have mentioned uh, lengths on here but you can use uh, i i think i used a a, a diagram so uh how long and wide roughly was the axe uh actually i did mention sizes in that so you can do sizes or the way that i described it whatever's good for you uh question five what did the killer of my brain is gone what did the killer leave of his behind on the towpath that's not even a sentence what did the killer leave of his behind on the towpath so what did the killer own that he left behind on the towpath of his that's i've had that all the way through i I kind of botched up the writing for this i didn't double check some of the words and some of the sentences were all over the shop this is going to be a bugger to edit right question six which fishing spot by petersham meadows was christine's body found at (laughs) haven't even read that properly which fishing spot by petersham meadows was christine's body found at uh question seven who were the two builders who identified alf if you're clever you can do both names both first and last names or you could just go their first names all good uh question eight where did the queen's coronation take place it's kind of weird we got quite a few uh murders happening around uh uh historic events we've got the queen's coronation here we've got ve day on the uh, elizabeth mcclinden episode i think there's some more ones where this kind of famous things happen and people getting uh murdered although murders happen all the time uh question nine what type of car did the police drive alf to the station in it was uh, the typical police car of the time but what type you can make, mention color if you like as well uh, and question 10, which bridge on the Thames has a mortuary under it? There's a few of them, but um, 
which is the one that I mentioned. Which bridge on the Thames has a mortuary underneath it? Oh, we will do the questions answers to those very shortly. Uh, I'm going to do I'm going to try and do a little bit of extra mile here, but I've got to be really careful because we've still got an episode to go, and I'm really there's a lot of information that I don't want to use now and spoil later on so uh i'm going to be really careful about this so i might just gloss over i might just go through a lot of the stuff that we've already done through before so discovery of uh, barbara's body obviously was done monday the first of june 953 that's the next morning 8 15 a.m so roughly she'd been in the water about nine hours it was on the surrey side of the river so it's the opposite side to uh where she'd been at the picnic uh, it was just by St. Catherine's Convent School, which is still there today. It's just called St. Catherine's now. Uh, and that's by Radnor Gardens. As mentioned, he, she, she was like 15 to 20, min, 20 feet from the riverbank. Uh, Heath initially thought it was like a log or just some rubbish or something. But because uh, George Costa worked for the uh, Thames Port of London Authority, you know, it could be a, an obstacle that could get into propellers and things like that. So he was trying to lasso it in with a rope uh, as part of his job. And that's what happened. He uh, Then he realised it was a body. Uh, Police Sergeant George Cooper was in a motorboat. He got a wireless message. Police had wireless radios there at that point. Uh, so he arrived at 9.05am, uh, saw the body lying in shallow water near the bank. Um uh he removed it into the boat as mentioned it was quite sodden because she was wearing jeans and woolen top and things like that and he put it into the boat and drove it north uh yes north i always have to keep thinking which way's north south it's 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 a hard one technically this is downstream heading towards the sea so from here um the river kind of starts as mentioned it kind of way past oxford and it goes through windsor and then it goes on this point and then it continues towards the city and then it goes out towards Essex and the sea. I think I mentioned that in episode one. Uh, so at this point, it had rough, the body had roughly floated about 1.3 miles. Uh, but as mentioned before, at various points of the day, because the River Thames is tidal and it rises and drops about 23 feet and there's just millions and millions of gallons that literally rush through the Thames every day. Uh, it's tidal, so when the lock sluices are up, the river becomes tidal again. When the lock sluices are, sluices are down, uh, it, it becomes a lot more managed. But they have to keep it rising and uh, they have to keep it uh, flowing, uh, otherwise it'll just overflow. Uh, so therefore, if you were to drop a body in the river, any point past heading to lock it could literally go anywhere it could probably stay still or it could really go out to sea miles literally that's why they were struggling with this they worked out it would be roughly about three miles but they knew that you know they had that lock but the next lock after that hmm i can't think which one that is anyway the, you know they did a great job to shut down that much of the thames for almost a week as well don't forget that's to traffic boat traffic so this is a a busy river uh, then they found the crime scene that was at Teddington Lock. As mentioned, you know, at night time it's hard to see anything. It's very pitch black there. There's no lights. There's no street lights. There's no. There was no moon that night. So even with a torch, it was hard to see everything around them, from like the water to the path. To everything looked black. So it's hard to see. You wouldn't have seen blood stains on the path. You probably wouldn't have seen a mac on the floor. Do you know? Um, 
on the on the uh, Patreon listeners will be getting all the uh, crime scene photos. But if you look on there, the Mac is right in the middle of the path. It's you can see where it is. It hasn't been moved. It's right there. But you can understand why in nighttime people would just or, or you know some people would probably just ignore it. Why would why would you want to pick up a Mac on the floor? Really, someone's dirty Mac. Yummy. Uh, but yeah, no. When the when the when the bright lights were on, the sunlight, they could see that there was blood stains on the floor. They could see the drag marks into the bushes. They could see the drag marks out of the bushes, down the coping stones, uh, which are, are on the side of the the river wall. You've got the uh, the oak timbers that the the lock was made from. They were all covered in blood. Uh, so the girls were still bleeding when they were dragged down and then pushed into the water and dumped away. Alright. Uh, so yep, uh, she, uh, Barbara was taken to St Helena Pier and arrived at about 9.20am uh, Now, I think we've kind of done everything with the uh, the body itself We've done all that, let's get on to Oh yeah, uh, let's do that in a bit, sorry I'm thinking ahead So yep, uh dredging the river we've done that i've been very good uh body of christine so okay uh she was found on saturday the 6th of june as mentioned so that's six days later a duke's hole in peach peterson meadow so that's why in the last episode i kind of referenced that it, uh, they wouldn't know the significance of where they were they're at peterson meadows but they obviously the girls wouldn't know that they were going to die and they wouldn't know that their body like christine's body would literally float back to peterson meadows where their picnic had just been and um, they would be picked up at, at St Helena Pier, just just about a mile and a half. Just, no, it's just under a mile north of that. Uh, so yeah, uh, Inspector William Lampard was on duty in a police boat. He was sent towards Glo- uh, Glover's Island, uh, which is just by Duke's Hole, and that's where they found the body. It was literally twenty-five feet from the Richmond side, so that's the Ham side uh, of the river wall. Uh, she was floating face down in the water, partially clothed amongst the algae. Uh, she was only wearing a yellow woolen cardigan with just the five buttons from the top. Uh, sorry, five buttons, only the second and the fourth were fastened. Her bra was fastened correctly. She had ankle socks on her feet, but no shoes, no knickers and no jeans. Uh, what else? So the autopsy was conducted that day. Uh, her father, Herbert identified her body which must have been absolutely horrible to have to do that um autopsy conducted uh is that a question no richmond mortuary uh so as mentioned before detective superintendent hannon was there uh, also there was detective sergeant john mary who accompanied detective sergeant hannon in this i haven't mentioned about john mary in this because sometimes i try and keep things as simple as possible and i think too many names can muddy it so because we're going to focus on because the next episode we're really going to focus on Detective Superintendent Hannon and uh, and Alf. Uh, I've kept John Merry out of this, although his his contribution was was very vital. Uh, so as mentioned in the story as well, uh, Christine seemed to have more wounds. Uh, so instead of two blows to the scalp, she had four. Uh, instead of three stab wounds, she had six. They were also deeper as well. Barbara's stab wounds were roughly about about four inches deep, but Christine's were about six and a half inches deep. Uh, so that gave them a kind of a, a good idea of uh, the length and width of the uh, the knife that was used to stab them. 
uh, Barbara's wounds were quite close to each other. They're all around the left breast and chest. So um, they could tell that the stab wounds were quite frenzied. You know, if they're frenzied, you kind of in and out, in and out in the same place. Whereas if you do it over a period of time, you're unlikely to get the same points in the chest. So uh, what else we got? Uh, Yeah. So as mentioned, it uh, three around the heart. uh, Two actually went in the heart. Uh, There was one wound that was slightly lower, went into her liver. But that was that was kind of it. But they were quite deep and frenzied wounds. Uh, she had numerous bruises to her upper and lower limbs. Uh, and two defensive wounds to the outside of her left forearm. Which were made by a knife. So she was still... Even though she'd been whacked over the head. She was still conscious at the time. Um, as mentioned she had fresh lacerations to her hymen. which uh, uh, And abrasions to her perineum. So that's the point between the anus and the vulva. Uh, and inside her, as mentioned before, uh, both girls had uh, had semen inside them. Uh, c- kind of remarkable given the amount of time that they're in the water as well. Um, uh, obviously, this was in an era where you couldn't really, you know, this is, well, like 40, 40 45 years before DNA is, in, is even used. Or So um, what they were able to tell from that was it was either... Uh, group A or group they said group A or O or a non secretor uh, which is pretty much most of the population so um, yeah Uh, but that was something quite interesting this took me a little bit of research because it's not explained in the case file I had to go away and look at it Uh, which was I was like oh okay well there's two lots of semen there so there must be two attackers but obviously not it's um, uh, you can you can re-get an erection and re-ejaculate within a short period of time if you're a, a lot younger, and it depends on different males. So for some males, you can uh, get an erection and ejaculate, and then you you, know, you may have to wait an hour. Or if, or if you're old, you know, if you're in your 40s, you have to wait a day or a week, or you, know, you have to write permission in advance. Uh, but obviously, if you, you're a lot younger, and especially if you're kind of you know, a sexual predator and sex is kind of your thing, rape and control and things like that, and you've got two dying girls in front of you, and this is the kind of thing that you like, you know, you're a twisted weirdo like that, the ability to... He probably already had an erection thinking about the attack that he was going to do, and, you know, raped one, and then, you know, a couple of minutes later, raped the other one again, because physically he was able to, so... Uh, uh, that was something that I thought was interesting. I was like, I was like, oh, well, there must be two attackers because there's, there's two lots of semen, but it's not. It's the same person. So, um, and that and that says, a, I think you can see a lot of information in the in the other rapes that are in there. Do you know, it, as mentioned in kind of this story near the end, he obviously had uh, uh, headed. He travelled 15 miles from Teddington on his bike to get over to Great uh, Win. That's not a question, is it? No, Great Windsor Park, uh, where he raped Patricia, Patricia Birch. He didn't know her, she's an entire stranger. He seems to be watching and waiting and just choosing his victims. Um, and that was kind of mid-morning. 
and then he seems to be i mean he even he would later say himself spoilers uh he would later say himself that he actually went to Oxshot park which was the original location where he'd raped that 14 year old girl uh, kathleen Raynham, ringham um uh, a couple of weeks before so he'd raped one woman and then the same day he went to Oxshot park in search of another one to rape so uh um he's clearly clearly uh not he's clearly deranged and you know a sexual predator but physically he's young and he's able to do that so he can do multiple rapes at the same time this is what they say with people who are rapists you know it's i mean firstly it's not about sex it's about control um but secondly physically do you know uh, as as they get as they get worse and worse uh, I mean, it's different with other ones, is it? Some of them can, like, rape, 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 or, like, three, four, five, six times a day. But others, they just lose the ability to uh, to get an erection at all or to ejaculate. Hence, strangling becomes their thing. They Because they can't... They can't get an erection anymore from the violence that they're inflicting, so they have to, they have to strangle instead. Uh, well, that was cheerful, wasn't it? Uh, right. Uh, let's do the answer to the questions before I forget. So... Question number one. Which two locks were shut to drain the River Thames? The answer is Teddington Lock. Of course, that's the triple lock where the murder location was. Uh, and Richmond Bridge. So just under, you'd go past Richmond Bridge and you wouldn't think anything of it. But just underneath Richmond Bridge is a set of locks that rise out of the water. So it's a flood defence. So when... Uh, when the Thames starts to get too high and starts to flood, they can just they can literally just press a button and it goes and it rises out of the water and then it just stops. I think there's one under Embankment Bridge as well. A couple of a couple of the bridges there's some there's some defences where they can just drop it up when they need to. Uh, obviously, the, I think obviously we've got the Thames Barrier, but the Thames Barrier is, is quite new. Whereas these are kind of kind of older ideas and they and they still work today. Um, Question two, what are the riverside buildings used for at St. Helena Pier? Uh, obviously, the, uh, a very, very brief cursory autopsy was conducted there, just a visual one, but they're boat sheds. They're used for the sculling crews, the four and eight man, eight person sculling crews, uh, where the people go, stroke, stroke, stroke. Pointless sport. Uh, question three, what road did Prudrick what road did Patricia Birch cross to get to Great Windsor Park? Oh, the answer is Wick Lane. Wick Lane. Uh, question four. How long and wide, roughly, was the axe? Uh, it was. Well, it was roughly about a foot and a half long and the the blade was about eight inches wide but on in the podcast i also describe it as as long as an arm and as wide as a head i thought that would be easier because then therefore we don't have to convert it into inches and centimeters and all that rubbish um question five what did the killer leave behind of his on the towpath he left behind his green gabardine raincoat. Question six. Which fishing spot by Petersham Meadows was Christine's body found at? Uh, it was called Duke's Hole. 
So I mentioned that in episode one and episode two. Uh, question seven. Who were the two builders who identified Alf? They were Harry Bradford and Bernard Hannam. That's Hannam. H-A-N-N-A-M. Not Hannan as in Herbert Hannan, the detective. Not related. Uh, question eight. Where did the Queen's coronation take place? That was at Westminster Abbey. Uh, question nine. What type of car did the police drive Alf to the station in? It was a black Woolsey saloon, which is the standard police car of the day. Uh, and question 10. Which bridge on the Thames has a mortuary under it, as mentioned in this episode? And that was Tower Bridge. So if we look under the uh, north side of Tower Bridge, just underneath, you'll see uh, a set of steps leading up and then a little door. And that's because um, of the way the sandbanks are underneath of the uh, the River Thames. There's kind of, and because it's curved as well, there's, uh, there's points in the Thames where bodies tend to drift up. And they realise that, do you know, because there's like 50 bodies a year drift down the Thames, either from suicides or accidents unfortunately quite a lot of suicides because there's a lot of bridges obviously uh bodies tend to wash up just by tower bridge so that's why they put a uh, uh a mortuary there just makes it easy uh so i think that's it that's me done for this week's episode i'm gonna shut <coughs> i'm gonna shut up now uh <coughs> have my tea and uh croissant and then move the boat neighbor hasn't woken up yet so i could have I could have had an extra half an hour sleeping. <sighs> but he's not going to put his engine on, is he? That's going to really piss me off now that he now that he's not awake. It's like, why haven't you put your engine on? You, I'm going to bang on his door. Why haven't you put your bloody engine on? I, I had to wake up at bloody half four in the morning to start recording this shit. <laughs> Just to stop. Oh, so annoying. Anyway, that's fun. Uh, next week's episode is the three-parter. And then we'll do four weeks of uh, something a little bit different. That gives me time to put out some episodes which are different, give us a bit of a gear change, but also it gives me a chance to do the final part of the research for the rest of the episodes for the series. And if I get some time, I might try and sneak back into the National Archives and look at some more files. Because if the virus is going to be a second coming and we don't know what's next, the uh, archives could be shut in January february which is when i do my research which i don't want so i'm thinking ahead anyway that's that done right end of the episode that's all good have yourself a good week stay safe be good uh lots of love bye bye if you're looking for plump lips that last you need to know about juvederm lip fillers with juvederm volbella xc and juvederm ultra xc your lip look whether it's subtle or bold can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at juvederm.com today that's j-u-v-e-d-e-r-m.com add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with juvederm volbella xc or juvederm ultra xc do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.